this was all circulating around the base that a giant had been killed, but no one was supposed to talk about it. I saw three long bony fingers reach up underneath the door, curl up to grab it, and then disappear. When he came over to me, dude, he slithered over to me. And this giant comes out of the cave, and they're all frozen. And he starts running and firing at this giant. Well, the giant moves. He's got a spear in one hand, and he's running really fast. And spears Dan and holds him up like this. Somebody yells, shoot him in the face, shoot him in the face. They basically decapitate him. Got closer, got closer, got closer. When he got about 15 yards away from me, I raised that 12 gauge, and I blowed his head off. I feel something pulling at my leg, and I look over, and there are two small gray entities pulling at me. And they're literally, I'm getting pulled off the bed. I reached my hand into this bush, and I touch air. Couldn't breathe, and I couldn't move, because I know I'm seeing a monster. Yep. Welcome to the show, everybody. You're listening to The Confessionals. I am your host, Tony Merkel. Thank you for being here. If you've had an encounter or a story you'd like to share with me on the show, go ahead and shoot me an email. My email address is theconfessionals at theconfessionalspodcast.com. That's theconfessionals at theconfessionalspodcast.com. Or go to the website, theconfessionalspodcast.com. Hit the contact section and you can reach me that way as well. Either way works for me, just get a hold of me. Now, if you want more shows every week on Thursdays, we release an extra show for members only to the website. So if you want more of The Confessionals on a weekly basis, go to theconfessionalspodcast.com, hit the join button and become a member today. Now, I want to let everybody know that I greatly appreciate everybody who's been showing support for the new podcast me and my dad had started called Hammer Lane Legends. And we launched it last Tuesday and people have just been really raving about it and really coming to us and just letting us know how much they love it. And so I just want to say thank you to everybody who's been supporting our efforts in creating a really cool new podcast. If you're interested in checking it out, Hammer Lane Legends, you can find it on any podcast playing app that you listen to this show on. And basically what it is, it's a very similar format to The Confessionals, only we're talking to truck drivers and people who drive for a living, and they're sharing their wild, crazy experiences from driving on the road. It could be police officers, truck drivers, EMTs, firefighters, we don't care who it is, but if you have a wild and crazy experience and stuff, we want to talk to you about it on Hammer Lane Legends. So go ahead and check that out if you so choose. And just a reminder, let everybody know that we are going to the Ohio Bigfoot Conference this year on May 2nd, 2020. It's going to be me, my wife, my son, my brother Jack, and my sister Tanya. We're all showing up and we're going to be vendors there. So if you're interested in coming and checking out the vending area or even the conference itself, go to the OhioBigfootConference.org and get your tickets for the conference. And if you just want to come hang out at the vendors area and meet me, meet all the other vendors and meet the speakers of the conference, just show up. It's free. Salt Fork State Park in Ohio. All you got to do is show up to the lodge and there you go. It's free entry. So there you have it. Now this week we have a 
great show coming up where we have Bill Schnoblin. Now, Bill Schnoblin is somebody who has been around the block on so many different levels, anywhere from Luciferianism to Mormonism to Masonry and pretty much everything in between. Bill Schnoblin has a very wild life that he lived, and he comes on to share his story. I want to let everybody know ahead of time, he could only give us an hour, and so hopefully in the future we can bring him back on and give him more questions and have him really kind of engage in conversation. Today's show is really just Bill sharing his life story within about a 55-minute period. So without any further delay, let's get to Bill and get this going. Today we got a great guest coming on, Bill Schnoblin. How are you, sir? Doing real well. I am blessed. How about you? I am blessed as well. And I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, you're somebody that I've been wanting to talk to for a while. And uh, I've known about you since I started my podcast three years ago. And uh, you have a very captivating story where uh, you basically went through the ringer on a spiritual level, <laughs> anywhere between you know being a Satanist to a witch to uh, being involved in uh, different religions. And so I would love for you today to just come on the show and share with people how this all started for you. How did you get involved in Satanism? What was it that kind of got you going down this path to begin with? Well, um, I'll tell you, I mean, I started out as a good little Catholic altar boy. I mean, you know, and I, I have no excuses, really. I was raised in a really nice, devout Catholic family with wonderful folks, and you know. Um, but I know part of what happened, and I mean, I I don't know. This could, I mean, this has been a two-hour teaching at one point, but I'll yeah. I'll try to hit the salient points. Um, I think part of what happened, and there, there's a very cautionary tale here. Because again, I'm uh, for those of your listeners who may not know me, I'm I was born in 1949, so I was a child in the 50s. And um, in any event, I was out trick or treating back in those innocent days on Halloween night. And uh, the first time anything happened to me that was weird, really, is I was out with my best buddy, and we were going door to door getting candy and all that. It was a lovely Halloween night, and um, anyway, all of a sudden, I looked up into the heavens, and it appeared as though the, the stars, which had been there just minutes before, were blocked out, and instead, there was this, I don't know how to describe it here, like this huge, vast dome overhead of these leathery-winged, bat-like creatures, hanging like almost like bats hanging from the ceiling of a giant cave. Now, mind you, I had never seen a horror film. Um, I mean, I was a total innocent. I knew nothing about the occult. I didn't know anything about the satanic origins of Halloween. And yet here, these things were staring down at me with ruby red eyes, and I felt this unholy thrill go through me. That's the only way I can describe it. And so then my friend who kept walking, because I sort of stopped and I was just staring like a dummy at the at the sky, he said, what's going on? You know, and I looked down at him and I looked back up and the sky looked normal again. 
So I kind of had one of those shuddery moments, and I just went up and walked with him, and we finished getting our stuff for the night. Well, anyway, looking back on this 30 years later, you know, when I got born again, I can see where that began a gradual descent in, in junior high and in high school into more and more fascination with things that were outre, things that were paranormal. I I got books on ESP. I got as a voracious reader. Um, I got books on haunted houses and the paranormal. I was got involved with UFOs. I mean, all of this stuff, you know, that back then, believe me, hardly I didn't know anybody who was into these things. It was just me and the public library getting every book I could get my hands on. And um, so that was the groundwork. Then when I got it, and the other thing I should mention is from the time I was a child, I wanted to be a priest. Because that's, you know, if you're a Catholic boy and you think you want to be all holy and whatnot and sanctimonious, you want to be a, a monk or a priest, you know. So I wanted to be a priest. And so I, um, I uh, signed up for the minor seminary and uh, started college. And in college, and this is what really did me in, um, this has been 1968, I was in a theology course. And again, this is a Catholic college. And the professor was a priest and also a doctorate, a licentiate doctorate in theology from the Vatican. He told me that if I wanted to be like Christ, that I needed to study the occult because that's what he did. Jesus, Yahushua, whatever. And so, you know, I started reading occult books because this, you know, because back in those days, I mean, this is before anybody knew anything about pedophilia and the priesthood and all this kind of stuff. A priest was like God. If a priest told you something, you did it. You know, you didn't ask why, you just did it. And so I started studying the occult. I started studying um, even deeper into these things. And I, I found this book by Sybil Leake called The Diary of a Witch. And in this book, she was really one of the first um, major figures. I mean, she was a British woman who moved, I think she moved to Texas. And she was really one of the first people to come out and say, okay, hey, there are good witches out there. We're not all like, you know, the Wicked Witch and the Wizard of Oz or the evil witch in the, what you call it, the Snow White and the Seven Dwarves movie. And so, long story short, I decided, well, this is what I want to do. I want to be a witch because some of these books by witches asserted that Yahushua, Jesus, had been a witch. He had a coven of 12 followers, which makes 13, and then they all were had their wives and that that made a grand coven of 26 members, and it was all just, you know, it was witchcraft. And so I thought he was a witch. And I thought by becoming a white witch, quote-unquote, in the in the moral sense, not in the racial sense, you know, I would be following him. And so in my senior year, I dropped out of the seminary, and I got I went full bore into being a witch. And... um Later on, after I got I got out of college, I got a teaching job. I was introduced to this guy in Milwaukee who ran an occult bookstore, and he in turn he was a witch. 
And he, in turn, introduced me to um, this guy who was the Grandmaster Druid of North America. And um, he was from down in Arkansas. And he'd come to Milwaukee, which is just three hours from where I lived at that time, to teach classes in being a druid, which is a you know a form of witchcraft. <clears throat> and so I got involved with that, went down to Arkansas to study with him for a whole summer, got ordained to be a priest and a high priest in the druidic rite. And then I've also got involved with the Alexandrian rite. These are all like, if you will, denominations within Wicca, white witchcraft. And uh, I ended up being initiated there by uh, Patricia Baker, who'd been initiated by Alex Sanders, who was the king of the witches over in England at that time. Or he at least claimed to be the king of the witches. <laughs> and so, so I had all these, you know, initiations. And I went to Milwaukee and started setting up covens with my wife, who was my high priestess. And we, we ended up having a whole network of covens up and down uh, the western coast of Lake Michigan, Chicago, Milwaukee, Kenosha, you know, all these different cities. And uh, I personally initiated over 175 women into Wicca because it's, you know, it's done male to female. And um, so then at that point, uh, two things happened. One is that um, this this guy who was the druid way back in Arkansas, he had told me that if I wanted to really get into some good stuff, I should join the Freemasons because he happened to be a 33rd degree Mason in addition to being this high-level druid guy. And he said, well, you know, the Masons have access to a lot of the Luciferian mysteries. And um, so on his suggestion, I ended up, uh, that what it ended up that one of the young men in our coven, his dad was a Masonic lodge officer. So I talked to him, and they brought me in, and I was made a. Ma I went through the degrees, and became a master mason. That was, I think, in 1976. At the same time, this friend of mine who ran the occult bookstore there in Milwaukee, he told me that I should read the Satanic Bible. And I said, well, why would I read the Satanic Bible? Witches don't believe in Satan. And he says, well, no, I know that, but most of these people in the Church of Satan don't believe in Satan either. They just think it's a useful, um, what was the word, like um, archetype of rebellion. But he said, if you read the book, the Satanic Bible, that it would really give me a lot of insights into magic and the higher levels of the occult. So I read the Satanic Bible, and uh, I ultimately ended up joining the Church of Satan because I, I liked some of their ideas, which you know shows how messed up I see. This is the thing: people under, need to understand this. If you haven't ever been in the occult, you, you you don't just wake up one morning like and say, "Hey, I want to be a devil worshiper." It's a very subtle, gradual thing. And, you know, like in my case, I started out with uh, studying UFOs and haunted houses and ESP and, you know, all that's relatively benign. 
And then from there, I got led into the occult. From there, I got led into witchcraft. And from there, I got led into Freemasonry, which, by the way, is Luciferian. And I do not recommend any guy who claims to be a Christian should ever join the Freemasons. I wrote a book, Masonry Beyond the Light, just to address this kind of thing. But, you know, that that's a separate topic. The point is, I just gradually was drawn into these things by the evil one, you know, and ultimately, I, I got to the Church of Satan. I became a second-degree member, a warlock, in the Church of Satan. And, uh, you know, people question some of this. They question my story. I have published photocopies of everything I possibly can that, you know, like I have the certificate when I was in the Church of Satan. I have the certificate of me being a Master Mason and, you know, being a member of the Church of Wicca and so on and so on. So anyway, um, you know, like uh, Dr. Waller Martin said many years ago, uh, when he had me on his radio show, he said that my credentials cannot be fairly challenged. I, I was who I said I was. So in any event, I got involved with um, Church of Satan, and then from there, I ran into some people. And mind you, this was, there was no internet back then. This was all being done by by mail or by newsletters or whatever. And I I just felt like, and it, plus of course I had spirit guides because I was an ordained spiritualist medium. And I would go into trance and these supposed enlightened beings, who I now know were demons, but at the time, I was like what today they call a trance channel, or I was a medium. And I would have these beings speak through me, and they would give me advice. And my wife would sit there and write all this stuff down, and most of it was absolute bilge. It was lies from the pit of hell. But you see, here's the thing people need to understand. If you don't have an objective source of truth, you know, you can you can pretty much believe anything. I mean, it's like you're kind of adrift spiritually, and I didn't know hardly anything about the Bible. I mean, being raised Catholic, you don't know much about the Bible. I knew I knew the story of of Christ's life, and I knew some of the basic stuff, but I'd never read the Bible. You know, even though I was a seminarian for four years, I never touched a Bible because back in those days, Catholics weren't supposed to read the Bible. So I was like clueless. Wow. And I would I would read, you know, a book by, you know, Rudolf Steiner or a book by, you know, the head of the Rosicrucians or a book by Aleister Crowley. You know, like, oh, this is all wonderful stuff, you know, and of course it's horrible stuff. I mean, you know, Aleister Crowley was a fiend and a pervert and a drug addict, and, you know, he claimed to be the wickedest man in the world, wickedest man in the world back in the first half of the 20th century. And he probably was, except maybe for Hitler. And, you know, and, you know I was a follower of the guy. I, I joined the OTO, which was Crowley's organization. I, I was starting to say that these spirit guides would tell me, okay, you've gone through the second degree of the church and say, now you're ready for the real thing. Because these spirit guides, who are actually demons, were telling me there's real hardcore Satanism beyond this. This stuff is what I used to call Anton LaVey's outfit, the church of Satan. I used to call that comic opera Satanism, you know, because it was all theatrics. And if you read the Satanic Bible, 
you know, which I don't recommend anybody do, but and you you study it out, they the, the, the official position of the Church of Satan is that they don't even believe in the devil. They just look at him as an archetype of the rebel of of rebelling against authority, rebelling against heaven, against the Almighty, you know, and so on and so on. So I thought, well, heck, I'm going to really go for it. You know, so I, I read some of the works of Michael Aquino, who founded the Temple of Set. I, I also got involved with the Order of the Black Ram. I got involved with the Brotherhood in Chicago. And in that organization, let's see, that would have been 1977. Uh, I sold my soul to the devil. I wrote my name in blood in the black book. And... Um, I didn't know at that time the devil already had my soul. I thought it was a good deal. And here's the interesting thing about that. Because, see, I would, um, I was promised in return for signing this contract that I would have seven years of anything I wanted. If I wanted wine, women, song, power, magic, wealth, anything I wanted, the devil would give it to me. And then at the end of that seven-year period, the devil got to kill me and take me to hell. Now, the average listener might think, well, that sounds not like a very good deal. Right. But you see, you got to understand something. I was told that heaven was a place for the sheep and that hell was a place for the wolves. And only losers went to heaven because all you do in heaven is sit around on a cloud and twang away on a harp. And it was boring. Whereas hell, I was told, was this one long, you know, orgy, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all that stuff, you know. And so hell was for the winners. Heaven was for the losers. That's what we were taught. And I believed that. And so I thought, well, hey, I, this is a good deal. I can have all this stuff, you know, everything I ever wanted in life, magical power, excuse me, occult power, wealth, whatever. And uh, and then I get to go to an eternal party forever. Well, anyway, here's the thing. I, I signed the contract, all that good stuff. But I was very diligent. I was, a, it sounds funny to say this, but I was a devout Satanist. I mean, I did all the rituals. You know, every Friday night we'd have a black mass and I would, I recruited people. I got other people to sell their souls to the devil. And I hate to say it because it sounds kind of weird, but it's almost like a multi-level marketing thing. You know, the more people you get signed up under you, the higher you go in the in the brotherhood, in the satanic organization. And in the meantime, I was going through Scottish Rite and the Freemasons, York Rite and the Freemasons. I became a Shriner. You know, I got involved in the Palladium, which is really high-level Freemasonry. You know, I was just plowing through this stuff. And, um, you know, I, I got initiated. I, I don't know. Do you know who Pappas was? Uh, no, it doesn't ring a bell. Well, he wrote a, a classic occult book called the Tarot of the Bohemians. His real name was Gerard Encos. He was a Frenchman and he was basically kind of contemporary of Aleister Crowley's. Anyway, he was one of the great occultists of the late 19th and early 20th century. Well, his son came all the way over from Paris to initiate me into the Martinique Society, which is an inner order of the Rosicrucians. I got 
taken into the Palladium Freemasonry, which is the higher levels of esoteric Freemasonry. Uh, I ended up becoming a 90th degree Mason, which that, that took a couple of years, but most Masons don't even know such a thing exists. Oh, but yeah. uh, if you, again, look up in your own encyclopedias, guys, if you look at Waits, Arthur Edward Waits' book on Freemasonry, if you look at Mackey's book on Freemasonry, the Encyclopedia of Freemasonry, you will find in there there is a, there is a rite of Masonry that's called the Rite of Memphis and Mitria. And in that right, there are 97 degrees. And I got up to the 90th degree. And wow. and all this stuff is deeply Luciferian. you got to understand that. Once you get past, I mean, and let me just say this. In the Scottish rite, which is the more occult, more sinister of the two branches of American masonry beyond the Blue Lodge, because see, in, the, in American masonry, you have the three degrees of Blue Lodge, you become a Master Mason. Then it, then the, if you want to go further, there's like a fork in the road. And you can either go to the York Rite, or, which has eight degrees or seven degrees, or you can go up the Scottish Rite, which has 29 degrees. And they, they tell people, well, the York Rite is more Christian, which is kind of a lie, but they tell people that. The Scottish Rite is more overtly anti-Christian. I did both because I was a real zealot. And, you know, just as an example, in the 19th degree of the Scottish Rite, they actually call up the devil. They summon Satan. And and believe me, there there are literally thousands of, of pastors, of Christian, you know, men who are involved in masonry, and they think it's perfectly fine, and are deceived right down to their toenails. And I have to tell you, and I, I can get into that later on when I start talking about how I got saved out of all of this, but, you know, people need to understand how dangerous this stuff is, because in its own way, masonry is just as satanic, just as dangerous as being a, a member of the Church of Satan. The only difference is you don't know it. I tell people it's like the difference between knowingly sitting on a hand grenade and having it go off versus unknowingly sitting on a hand grenade and having it go off. Whether you're a mason and you're doing it unwittingly or whether you're a Satanist and you're doing it wittingly, you're you're still spiritually shattered. You're still spiritually destroyed either way. And not only are you destroyed, but your family is destroyed. Your children are destroyed. And I speak from experience. So are you talking about like generational curses when it comes to like yeah. your children being destroyed? Yes, exactly. I don't mean that Masons are going to come to your door and kill your children. No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, you know, it says in the scriptures that the sins of the fathers are visited unto the children, even in the third and fourth generation. And if you are in Masonry, whether you know it or not, you're worshiping Baal. You are worshiping a false Elohim, a false god. And that's not good, because idolatry carries with it a curse. And that curse can be passed on to your to your wife, to your children, to your grandchildren, and so on, unless you repent, get saved, and pray and break it. And we, I will just mention this, on our website, withoneaccord.org, we have... Um, prayers that people can download, and they're like PDF files that are they're free of charge, 
that people can go through and pray if people don't know how to pray and break generational curses. We have the prayers to teach them how to do it. And we have prayers to renounce Freemasonry. We have prayers, to, you know, no matter, you know, pretty much no matter what you, what garbage you've been into, we have a prayer for you <laughs> because I've been in most of it. You know, I mean, it's like I belong to the Call of the Month Club. So anyway, back to my story. So I got involved with, with this hardcore satanic stuff. And I got involved with this guy who called himself the Master H. And this guy was an extremely high-level Illuminist. He was a part of the evil Illuminati. And he basically told me you know, that I needed to progress to the point that I was ready for the Luciferian initiation. And essentially what happened, I didn't know what that even entailed. And during this period, you know, this was like 78, 79. I was, um, I was visiting my parents who lived about 150 miles away from Milwaukee, which is where I was living. I'd gone home alone for whatever reason and I was sleeping in my old bedroom, you know, and I had this bizarre dream. And I don't know what it was, if it was a dream or if it was astral projection or something even more sinister and more powerful than that. But what happened was I left my body and I was taken to this like moon or planetoid that was around Saturn. And I could literally look up in the sky, and I could the entire sky was filled with the planet Saturn, with the rings, you know, and all of that. And so I looked around, and there was this creepy-looking black obsidian castle. I mean, it was not like anything I'd ever seen before. It was not like any earthly castle, however creepy it might have been. The angles were all wrong, and it just it just looked really, really bizarre. And in the dream or whatever it was, I went up to the door of the castle and there was this guy in a white robe standing there. It was this Master H. And he says, welcome to the Cathedral of Pain. Okay, so I go into this cathedral, not really liking the idea of being Cathedral of Pain. And in the dream, by the way, I'm naked, which is not usually a good thing. And I, I walk into this giant room, the interior of the cathedral, and I'm looking around, and instead of stained glass windows, this cathedral had these huge, it was like an aquarium, these floor-to-ceiling glass um, walls with bluish water or something with on each side of the walls and floating. And these giant aquariums were hundreds of dead bodies naked dead bodies of men, women, and children in various stages of dismemberment. It was pretty awful. It was downright stomach churning. And and so they lead me up to this weird altar that was made out of steel girders. And it was basically in the shape of a giant X, and they strapped me down to this altar. And, uh, I mean, I feel at this point like I don't like the way this dream is going. And so I'm laying there, spread the eagle, strapped down, and all these hooded figures come out, black robes, chanting blasphemous things in, in French, of all things. 
And fortunately, I knew a little French because my mother was a French major in college, and she tried to teach me. And it was, it was, it was the hair on the back of my neck was standing up. They were, they were saying really blasphemous things. And as they were chanting, I looked over to my left, which was kind of toward the, um, if you will, the sanctuary of the cathedral. You know, like if you were in like a Catholic cathedral, it'd be where the altar was, and there was this huge throne. And on the throne. There was this enormous figure, and it started getting more and more real the more these people chanted, and it would pulsate, and at first it would look like this giant um, goat-headed thing, like the Baphomet figure, which I'm sure some of the people that listen to your show know what that looks like. You had the, the head of a goat, the torso of a woman. Uh, the genitals of a man, and then the feet of uh, the legs of a goat. Yeah, and then it would change from that into um, a winged bull. And then it would it would like morph from that into this beautiful, angelic-looking man with long blonde hair and a white robe that looked looked very much like a an angel. It would just scintillate back and forth between these um, these three you know, images, if you will. It was huge. I mean, it was probably 30 feet tall. And so finally, these creepy people in the black robe stopped their chanting, and this thing got up off the throne with its cloven hooves and walked over to where I was. Just And literally, the floor would shake as these thing, this thing would walk. It was so big. And um, anyway, it came up to me and with these eyes, and I'll never forget the goat's goat-headed thing, you know, looked down at me, and it said, you now belong to me forever, body, soul, and spirit. And it took the index finger, I think it was the right talon, if you will, and stuck it into my forehead. And I felt this piercing pain, like... um like someone stuck a hot poker into my brain and it was like my whole brain was turned into live steam and it was just terribly, terribly painful. And I just screamed in agony. And at that moment, it's like I shot out of this temple. I was heading back to earth, like in a fireball. And, uh, as I can, I could actually see the earth coming up in my vision, just like, you know, you'd see in a sci-fi movie. And anyway, as I came near the earth, I had the, cause I, I knew a little bit of the new Testament, you know, just enough to be dangerous. And I had this verse come into my head that where Yahushua, where Jesus said, behold, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And I crashed into the lawn in my backyard at my parents' house. And I staggered into the house. I looked in the mirror. I had this big gash in my forehead right where the thing had put its talon. And I still have a scar there to this very day. And from that time on, I was like, I was going in the direction of being a monster. I really was. I I started, I got initiated into vampirism and started living on human blood. I was going around, you know, trying to get as many people as I could to join Satanism and, and sign their soul away to the devil. Uh, I was seducing people, uh, 
you know, it was a terrible time. It was the darkest time in my life. And I was, I tell you, I was, a, you know, because blood, okay, I, I wrote a whole book, of two books, actually, about this. One is called Lucifer Dethroned. The other one is called Romancing Death. And in both books, I talk about the whole blood thing and why blood is so addictive and why why the Bible tells us don't drink blood. Don't drink animal blood. Don't drink human blood. Don't do it. It's because it's it's an extremely addictive substance. And I and unlike and just like any other addiction, because I I went on after I got born again, I got a master's degree in counseling from Liberty University. And, you know, I understand addiction very well. I worked in an addictions counseling center for five years in my post after becoming saved. And uh the more you take of an addictive substance, the more you want, whether it's alcohol, whether it's cocaine, whether it's, you know, opioids or whether it's blood. And blood is the worst, believe me. And I was to the point where I thought I was going to kill somebody because I'd worked out an arrangement, you know, where there were, I had this network of Cummins under me. And I had uh, from the dozens of women that were in the group. I had five or six women that were willing to let me bite them in the neck. And, you know, so every other night or so, I would take one of these women and bite them in the neck and drink their blood. But it was getting harder and harder for me to not kill these women because the addiction was getting stronger. And I was really getting pretty desperate at this point because I was afraid I, I'd gotten a job. Hey, here's, let, me, let me say one other thing here. You know, all this stuff about, oh, you join, you write your name in the blood in the book, you know, you're going to get everything. That was a lie. You know, I never got wealthy off of the devil. I never got that much power. I got a little bit of occult power. But, you know, I never, I mean, it was really pretty pathetic. The devil is the ultimate welcher, let me tell you. I mean, he doesn't keep his promises. And so I ended up. Here I'm like this supposedly the most, one of the most powerful sorcerers in Milwaukee, and I'm supposed to have all this power and all of this wealth in my control. And here I'm a vampire; I can't even go out during the day. And and so I had to get a job putting newspapers in boxes for the local newspaper <laughs> at night. You know, like if it was like third shift, and. So I'd be driving around the streets of Milwaukee on North Avenue in the middle of the night, and I'd see the occasional hooker or homeless person or whatever, and it was all I could do to not jump on them and drink their blood and kill them. It was getting pretty bad. And so ultimately what happened is in the middle of all this darkness, I every year I was sending off a check to the Church of Saint to get their newsletter. I was paying my tithe to hell, so to speak. It was like 10 bucks. And that year, I got the check back from the bank, you know, canceled. And back in this day, you'd, you'd get, physically, you'd get your checks back at the end of the month, you know. And written on the check, some woman from the bank in Frisco, where the Church of Saint did its banking, had written on my check, I'll be praying for you in Jesus' name. <laughs> because she assumed anybody who was, you know, a member of the Church of Satan was in pretty deep spiritual doo-doo. And I was, because at that point, you know, I was 
on the verge of going crazy, you know, from bloodlust and all the darkness that I was involved in. So anyway, I just laughed. I thought, because by this time I was so deceived, I thought, you know, quote unquote, Jesus was the son of Satan. You know, that's how messed up I was. So I just threw the check in my file and forgot about it. Well, anyway, within a few days of getting that check in the mail, what happened was I got hit by something like a Mack truck, spiritually. I mean, I something just flattened me. I lost all my occult power. Uh, I mean, I was sick as a cat. I, you know, I could already get out of bed. I just felt awful. I felt like something was crushing me. And I don't know what it was. And in the middle of all that, I got a phone call from these two teenage Satanist girls from Chicago. And they had heard about me and they wanted to come up and see the great Satanic priest, you know, the whatever. And I'm, at that time, I was feeling pretty crummy, you know. But but I figured, well, they might. They said they had a gift for me, so well, maybe they'll give me some money, you know. So I said, okay, fine. Get get the train and come on up. So they took the Amtrak up to Milwaukee, and uh, they came in and they sat at my feet in adulation and blah blah blah. And they gave me these two comic books about the occult from Chick Publications. One was Angel of Light and the other one was Spellbound. And these are like, you know, Christian comics designed to warn people about the occult. And they said, you got to read these things. They're just, they're so stupid. They're so Neanderthal. And I, this is my present, you know. It was, you know, I just threw them in the back of my <laughs> drawer and forgot about them, you know. And so... I didn't realize at the time that in the back of those comic books was a thing, how to get born again. So what happens is the next day there's a knock on the door and I open the door and it's Mormon missionaries. And I think, well, this is the answer. I, cause I've been praying to Lucifer for a sign. You know, what am I supposed to do? Because I, I had all this stuff that I was supposed to have and none of it came to pass. And I was as sick as a dog and I had lost my job and it just, everything had, you know, basically gone to, you know, where, and here are these nice clean cut Mormons are at the door, you know, I can't think of their names anymore. There were two young men. And the thing is this Druid guy, this grandmaster Druid seven years earlier in Arkansas had told me if I ever got in spiritual trouble, I should join the Mormon church because it had been founded by witches for witches as a place where witches could go and be protected and that appeared to be nice, straight, normal Christian Americans, but secretly they'd still be witches. So that this is a sign. This is a sign from Lucifer. So I joined the Mormon church. That was in 1980. And um, so I moved through the ranks of the Mormon church. I, I did my best to give up my drugs. I never did have any kind of a thing with alcohol. But I, I had to give up my cocaine and my pot. And, uh, you know, because Mormons don't believe in doing that stuff. And uh, I got to go to the temple. I got married in the temple, which is this big deal because only about one-tenth of the Mormon population actually ever gets to go to the temple. And I was told by this Grandmaster Druid that in the Mormon temple, I would find the ultimate secrets of Lucifer. And so 
I went into the Mormon temple and I went out to Salt Lake because that's like the Vatican of Mormonism, you know. And if you look at that temple with the eyes of an occultist, the Salt Lake Temple, it is covered in satanic symbolism and Masonic symbolism and occult symbolism, if you know how to decode it. And I did because I was a pretty high-level occultist and Freemason and whatnot by that time. So, uh, long story short, I go through the temple, and it's interesting, if you go through the temple ceremony, which I don't advise anybody doing, but you could you could probably find it on YouTube now. You know, someone doing a, a, a mock-up of the LDS temple ceremony. Anyway, you go through this thing, and you find out Lucifer, who's played by some Mormon guy, and who wears an apron like a mason, that he basically teaches all the theology in the Mormon temple at first. And then finally you go through this veil on the five points of fellowship, which is just like Freemasonry, just like witchcraft. You're taken to this celestial room, it's called, which is supposed to be like heaven. Then you're married if, you, if you're if you have intended to be married at the thing, you get married for time and all eternity, and it's all supposedly wonderful, but it's all from the pit of hell. And here's what happened. We talked to the president of the temple, and we told him what this druid guy had told us. And he said, well, let me get you an audience with one of the 12 apostles. Now, you may not be familiar with the Mormon church, but in the Mormon church, the hierarchy is you've got the prophet, you've got his two counselors, and you've got the 12 apostles. So this is way at the top of the Mormon church hierarchy. And we got an interview with Elder Faust, who at that time was one of the, one of the 12 apostles. And in that interview, we told him, what this druid guy had said, and he tells me, he said, I bear you my solemn testimony that what this, what you said was true, and that Lucifer is the god of the Mormon temple. And that's who we worship. But 99% of the members of our church don't know this, they don't understand it. So, you know, he said, move out to Salt Lake. There's obviously a place for you in the church. Well, so head back to Milwaukee. And, you know, the funny thing is, here I was, I was trying to be a good Mormon. I got up to be a, the president of the elders quorum in the ward, which is like a local congregation. And, and I was beginning to see that Mormonism wasn't really working as an ecclesiastical institution, okay? I mean, half the people never went to church. Only a fraction of the people had been to the temple. Uh, and if you didn't get to the temple, you're basically out of luck. Because if you, according to Mormon theology, and I have no reason to believe they've changed this, all they might have. But at the time, and again, this is in the early 80s, if you didn't go to the temple, you were stuck forever in one of the lower degrees of glory, because Mormons have three levels of heaven. And and Bruce R. McConkie, who, who was like the, an apostle of the church and the premier Mormon theologian of the 20th century, he said, 
in his book, Mormon Doctrine, that if you don't make it to the highest degree of glory, which you can only do by going to the temple, you're essentially damned. So I'm sitting here understanding this and seeing that, like, okay, 90% of my ward is damned. And I think, what the heck? You know, what kind of a church has a 95% failure rate? And, you know, I'm just seeing the wheels come off, you know? And in the midst of all this, I'm working as an elders quorum president, because you got to understand, in the Mormon church, the clergy doesn't get paid, except the highest level guys. So, like, the bishop who is right above me and me, we would work like 40 hours a week for the Mormon church, plus 40 hours a week in our regular job. So, I'm exhausted. You know, plus you spend three or four hours every Sunday at church because there's priesthood meetings before the meetings, then there's Sunday school meetings, then there's uh, priesthood meetings, then there's the the sacrament meeting. So you know, it's like it's like you're on a, you're like a gerbil on a spiritual treadmill. Yeah, and I'm just exhausted. You know, and one day because on top of all of this other stuff, you're supposed to go out and do home teaching which means every other night or so you have to go out and visit some family to see how they're doing. And that was the other problem. As I was going and visiting all these families, I was seeing how they were struggling, how you know one guy couldn't give up coffee, another guy couldn't give up his cigarettes, because both of those things are forbidden. If you're a Mormon, you can't smoke, you can't drink coffee, you can't, of course, drink alcohol either. And it's just like, you know, I was just worn out. Frankly, and I, I got home one night and I opened up my Bible because Mormons do use the King James Bible, and and my my eyes fell upon Matthew chapter eleven, where you know Yahushua Jesus says, "Come unto me, all ye that are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for I am weak, meek, pardon me, and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I sat there and stared at that scripture and I thought, my word, you know, if this is easy, I'd hate to see hard, (laughs) you know, because I thought I was following Jesus by being a Mormon priesthood holder. And then a voice spoke to me and said, go to Matthew 23, 2. Now, I'd only read the Bible through once by this time. I knew where Matthew was, but I had no idea what Matthew 23, 2 was. So I turned there, and it's where Yahushua is yelling at the Pharisees, more or less, ranting at them and saying, you know, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you bind heavy burdens on people that are grievous to be born, and yet you will not lift a finger to help them. And that just smote me. Because I felt at that moment like I was a Pharisee. I was standing over all these people in this ward, this congregation, and basically not able to help them. Because, you know, people talk about the Torah. You know, they say, oh, the Torah has 613 commandments. And it does. But the Mormon Church has 4,000. And they got to keep all of them, or they're damned. That's that's Mormon doctrine. Four thousand one hundred some commandments. I forget the exact number. And I felt like a Pharisee. 
and I was really, really struggling. And because my wife wanted to go to nursing school, we moved back to her hometown, which is Dubuque, Iowa. And I didn't have a job at that time. And I was just going to the Mormon church there in Dubuque and looking for work. And there was this prophecy seminar advertised in the local penny advertiser, you know. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go there and I'm going to steal some sheep. Because I figured it's some dumb Protestant group. And I know all this stuff because I belong to a church that's run by a living prophet. <laughs> and so I thought I was going to go there and wow them with my understanding of the scripture. Now, mind you, in all of these years, I had never once actually crossed swords, so to speak, with a born-again Christian. No one had ever witnessed to me, not 10 years in living in Milwaukee, not two years before I moved to Milwaukee and Dubuque as a witch. Nobody. Nobody had ever witnessed to me. Not even Jehovah Witnesses witnessed to me. <laughs> you know, I think they were afraid to come to our door. But anyway... So here I am, I'm going to this prophecy seminar, and the evangelist that was up there, he starts, you know, he starts his spiel, and I start asking, you know, what I thought were troublesome questions, and he had answers. He kept shooting me down, he had answer after answer, he really knew the Bible. And I was kind of floundering, even though I understand at this point, I had a master's degree in theology from a Catholic seminary. But that doesn't mean doodly as far as understanding the Bible goes, because I never had to read the Bible on the Catholic Seminary. I had to read Kierkegaard, I had to read Sartre, I had to read Aristotle, I had to read Plato, I had to read Aquinas, but I didn't have to read the Bible. Go figure. Yeah. So I'm sitting here getting filleted alive by the sword of the Spirit by this guy, and finally I come up with the one question that Mormons regard as an unanswerable question, if they throw it at a at a Protestant, quote-unquote, or evangelical, or whatever. And I said, okay, where do you get the authority to baptize people so they can be saved? Because you got to understand, Mormons believe that you have to have authority. And they, they look at the Roman Church, which claims they have this unbroken line of ascent, of descent back to Peter, down to the present Pope, which they call apostolic succession. And the Mormons teach that, that these heavenly beings, Heavenly Father and the Son, came down, and then later on John the Baptist ordained Joseph Smith to be a prophet, seer, and revelator, and restart the church in 1830, the Mormon church. So in the Mormons' eyes, there's only two true churches possible, either the Catholics or the Mormons, because they look at the Protestants as people that have broken away from the Catholic Church, which is sort of true, and therefore they have no authority. So I asked this guy, where do you get the authority to baptize people so they can be saved? Well, this guy bypassed the question I asked and said, where do you get the idea that you have to be baptized and be saved? It says in Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now, I'll tell you, that was a scripture that, that the almighty king of the universe had for me. And that scripture went through my magic underwear, because, you know, Mormons wear magic underwear, like a bullet through a sheet of wet tissue paper and hit me right in the heart. 
and I was I was trembling as I drove home that night because all every you got to realize everything I'd done in my life, whether it was being a Catholic altar boy, Catholic seminarian, witch, Freemason, Satanist, you know, Mormon, it was all doing things. It was all works. It was all what what James calls dead works, and it was worthless. And I was really convicted by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And I, I drove home that night, and I was trembling. And so I thought, okay, this is heavy-duty stuff. I've got to fast, because Mormons believe in fasting and praying. So they have this idea that if you have a difficult spiritual question, what you do is you fast and you pray, and if the thing you're asking is true, you'll get a burning in your bosom. And if the thing you're asking isn't true, you will get a stupor come upon you and you will forget what the question even was. That's right out of the Mormon scriptures. So the idea of Mormon discerning of spirits is you either get heartburn or you get stupid. That's your choice. Well, I didn't get either one. And after a week of praying and fasting and reading the scriptures, reading the Bible, because the funny thing is, this is another rabbit trail, but you can read the Book of Mormon and never find hardly any Mormon doctrines in it. You can find the Trinity in it, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's three and they are one. You can find how to be saved by grace through faith, like Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You can find all these things the Mormon Church doesn't believe in that are in the Book of Mormon. So I'm reading all of this stuff, and I'm reading Paul, I'm reading Ephesians, I'm and I read Galatians 1, where it's, Paul says, If I or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel than the one which I preach, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. And again, the Spirit, the Ruach, spoke to me and said, Go to 1 Corinthians 15, find out what the gospel is. So I go to the gospel. Go to First Corinthians 15, and there, in that um, chapter, it talks about how here is the gospel that I preach. Paul, of course, writing, and he says that the Yahushua, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, you know, died on the cross and rose from the dead on the third day, and he's coming again in glory. That's the gospel. And it doesn't say anything about magic underwear or going to temples or doing your genealogy or Joseph Smith or any of all of that nonsense. And at that point, I just I just figured, okay, I've tried every other thing under the sun. I might as well try this. And I remember those comic books. And they were in a box in the closet in my bedroom. And I went and I dragged them out. And I opened it up to the back of the comic book where it said, okay, here's how you become born again. So I knelt at the foot of the bed, and I, I took off my magic Mormon underwear, because I didn't want any static on the line, and I prayed the prayer that was in the back of that comic book. And I got born again. I got born from above at that moment. And I was translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And it, it's like the scales fell from my eyes so hard I could hear them hit the floor. And I've been serving Yahushua, Jesus Christ, ever since, you know? So, and of course, yeah, I had to go through some deliverance, believe me, uh, over the next couple of years. And to get, because I, I mean, believe me, I had more demons per cubic centimeter than an entire tavern. And, uh, but 
hey, he whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And, you know, I've been, I've been in full-time ministry serving him since 1986, and hallelujah. So that's a brief version of my story. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I know you just took, uh, I'd say, about 50 minutes to share the brief part of your story. <laughs> I, I do find your story fascinating. You know, I wanted to ask you a question now. This is something that I, and I've listened to a lot of different talks that you've done and stuff. Uh, sure. and. One of the things that I heard you say to me that I don't remember you talking about, or at least I never heard you talk about, is that whole I, that whole experience you had where it, it seemed like it was an out-of-body experience, but it also seems like maybe this was more, um, I don't know, it, it's it, the way you described it at the end, it sounded almost as, as if it was a very real physical experience with the, like the Baphomet and touching your forehead. Yeah, I know. I, I don't know how, I mean, you know, I've had people... Because, you know, I've, I've done conferences at Roswell, New Mexico on alien abductions and UFOs. And I have a book, Space Invaders, that deals with the spiritual aspect of the UFO phenomenon. And I've had people come up to me and say, well, what that is, is that's like a UFO abduction. You know, quote unquote, an alien abduction. Uh, because you know, if you if you read that, and I, mean, I realize that's a whole different subject, but if you read the literature, you look at, you know, like, um, oh, what's his name? Bud Mack, I think. And, you know, some of these other people did a lot of work with, with UFO abductees. Um, and, you know, they end up getting taken out of their bed and then end up getting dumped in a yard somewhere naked, you know, and they wonder how they got there. You know, I mean, it's almost the same thing that happened to me. And, you know, I don't know, I mean, I personally think what it was is, I think it was a physical taking of me away because I wasn't on drugs. I, I mean, at that time in my life, I'd done plenty of drugs earlier, but I was not high because I was visiting my parents and I wasn't dumb enough to get high while I was staying with my folks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, you know, I mean, I, I, I leave it open-ended. I say, I don't know if it's a dream. Because, you know, there is a thing called psychosomatization where either through the power of the mind or through spiritual demonic power, your physical body can be changed, can be, you know, like like we ministered to this one woman. Uh, this is after I was born again and we were doing deliverance, who... Every time there was a full moon, she would literally have to go into the, the locked ward of the local mental hospital. And while she was in there and she was in restraints, scars would appear on her back as if somebody was whipping her. Because as a little girl, she was tied up in a chair backwards and whipped by her parents. And these scars were real. They needed stitches. That's I think it was demonic, but a psychologist would say that psychosomatization. So I think I think it what what happened to me was demonic. I don't know if I actually was taken to the one of the moons of Saturn, or if that part of it was just like a a bad dream. Uh, but I know what happened inside of that so-called cathedral of pain was a genuine physical experience of some sort on some level. What I, I find interesting, uh, you you said that, I, I guess it was the Baphomet that touched you, right? 
Yeah. So he touches you in the forehead. Do you think that has anything to do with the idea of having a third eye? Well, yes, obviously. See, I had worked for years as a medium, as a spiritualist, a minister, as a witch, to cultivate my third eye, so-called. And, you know, to my mind, you know, if, if you study the literature on what, what, they, what is called the Luciferian initiation, it's basically about introducing the light of Lucifer into the Ajna Chakra, into the third eye, and opening up the third eye to the light of Lucifer, which is, of course, a false light. But it's still a light. That's why he's called, you know, the light bearer. And, you know, that's not his real name. His real name is Halal ben Shakar, the howling son of the morning. That's what he's called in Hebrew in Isaiah 14. But uh, it's clear to say Lucifer. Yeah. So, yeah, I think very definitely it has to do with the third eye. The third eye is something that, you know, gets talked a lot about in these kind of circles and stuff. And I, I know there's people who, you know, they're not sure how to feel about it. If, if the third eye is something legit to be, uh, to be focused on as a reality or if it's something that's more mythical. Uh, what are your thoughts on it from this vantage point that you have well, in life now? Let me say this. Um, basically, the third eye is the pineal gland. Okay? It's real. It's a, it's a gland within the brain, and it's essentially the gland that produces, because I'm also a naturopathic doctor. I mean, I have a lot of medical training, and the pineal gland produces melatonin, which helps us sleep. It gives us our circadian rhythm, you know, so that at night we want to sleep and at day we are awake, you know, all that kind of good stuff. It also produces minute quantities of DMT. You know what that is? Yes. It's a very popular drug. Yeah. Dimethyltryptyline. And that's why we dream. And what I tell people is this. You don't want to open your third eye with drugs, with occult practices, you know, like you can, you can, you can blow your third eye right wide open if you take ayahuasca, if you take mescaline or peyote or LSD, you know, or any of those kind of things like that. You don't want to do that because at that point it's like you know, you've opened your your mind and your soul and your spirit to every possible spirit that's out there that's evil. But what I do tell people is this, it is a real, it is an organ of the body that the Almighty put there. And it's where we are touched by the spirit of Elohim, of God. But you, what you have to do is do it his way, not your way. And by that, I mean, number one, you have to be born again. You have to be saved by grace. You have to live a set-apart, sanctified life. You have to immerse yourself in the scriptures and prayer. And you have to meditate on the word. You have to let get the scriptures in your heart, not just in your mind, but in your heart. And gradually, I think people who have prophetic 
gifts that are genuine. I don't mean false prophets like Joseph Smith, and I don't even mean a lot of these TV preachers that claim to be prophets, and actually they wouldn't know a real prophecy doorknob. You know, but I'm talking about the genuine article, people like David Wilkerson. God rest him. You know, men and women like that have the the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, has opened their pineal gland, and they have been touched by the divine because they are immersing themselves in Yahushua. They are immersing himself in his word. They are doing their best to keep his commandments and live set-apart lives like like. Like James says, you know, pure religion and undefiled is to take care of the widow and the orphan and keep yourself unspotted from the world. And if you do that, and if you live in Christ, and you cultivate, and some of the videos, the DVDs, both the YouTube videos that I do and the DVDs we talk about, like we have a DVD that's called The Seven Pillars of Power. And in that DVD, we talk about how to cultivate the prophetic through these things. And I think whether, you see, the trouble is the devil is the counterfeit. And he can he can open up the third eye with drugs, with occult meditation, with, you know, any number of things, including the thing that I had happened to me. That's the counterfeit. You don't want that. You want the genuine article. And the genuine article is the Holy Spirit, you know, coming to you through your obedience, because I like to say obedience is power. If you want to have power, spiritual power in your life, you need to obey Elohim, you need to obey Yahushua, you need to keep his commandments, you need to walk in holiness and study his word and also minister to the downtrodden, you know, I mean, take care of the poor, like James says, that kind of thing. and it will it will come to you, but it will be a gradual, beautiful thing, like the opening of a flower. But yeah, the pineal gland, the third eye, is real. And it's a beautiful thing, because it was created by, it's where we can touch God and where God can touch us. But it's got to be, it could be either a little G-God or a big G-God, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. Absolutely know what you mean with that. Uh, That's really interesting because, you know, I've never heard anybody uh, discuss or talk about the pineal gland like that from your vantage point. And uh, it's very interesting. It gives me a lot of things to think about um, from my own personal life and experiences. But, uh, Bill, I really appreciate you being here tonight. I know I said it would be just an hour, so I want to stay true to my word. We've actually run over an hour now. But uh, I really do appreciate you being here. And if you could, could you share where people can get your website and your book and things like that before we get out of here? Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And my website is withoneaccord.org. And we have a lot of free materials there. We have, you know, all of my books. Uh, We have a book on Wicca. We have a book on Masonry. We have uh, the Luciferty Throne, which is my autobiography, if you want more of the story I told tonight. We have Blood on the Doorpost, which is about spiritual warfare and deliverance. We have Space Invaders, that's about the UFO phenomenon. And we also have Romancing Death, my newest book, which is about the modern pop culture vampire thing and what it means spiritually. And, of course, we have dozens of DVDs. And we have a YouTube channel. So um, we invite people to come and check them out. 
Well, that's the show, everybody. I really hope you enjoyed it. And if you did enjoy it, please share the show with your friends. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok, email, water coolers. We don't care where you share the show. It could be on a windshield with a flyer. I don't care. But if you share the show, that helps the show grow, and we greatly appreciate it. So please let your friends know about The Confessionals. And I just want to say something real quick. I've said it before on the show where I get angry emails when a guest says something that people don't like, or even I say something that people don't like. I just want to say that we actually invite the angry emails in a sense, because when I start recording with somebody, before we go live, I tell them that This is very much a free speech program. I do not censor my guests. And if they say something on the recording, it's going on the show because I don't believe in censorship. And that is something that I pride myself on, that we actually have people on the show that truly speak their mind. And I believe that that is something very beneficial for people to experience, whether it's the person giving the information or us as the audience receiving the information. When we receive information from people who we don't agree with, at all. I think that we still gain because we have learned how somebody else's mind thinks about the world around them. Now, I'm not saying I don't agree with Bill Schnobel. There's a lot of things in this interview that I absolutely do agree with. But I wanted to tell people because I know there's a lot of people out there that don't agree with some of the things that were said in this show, but it's okay because I think you gained intellectually by learning how somebody else views the world around them. If you view it that way, you don't get so mad. Anyways, guys, I'm done preaching about that. Until next week, stay safe, take care, and remember, the truth will set you free, but first it'll piss you off. Bye.
stumble out into the light and raise my fists up to fight. Then I catch your eyes, so full of love. Lord, what have I done? I, I cry at your feet, wounded for me and all of the monsters and men. But here in your life, we can.